Baptists supported freedom of religion long before it was established in the United States. Baptists have long held that all reasonable people should be free to believe as they choose, and they should be free to follow the dictates of conscience. We have also insisted that some of those beliefs are wrong. The freedom to hold a strong conviction is no proof that your belief is right. We insist that there is an objective standard of truth that is external to all people. And we believe that the Lord will judge all people in strict accordance with His righteous standard. This means the freedom of religion we willingly extend to people in this society is not extended to them by God. God will hold people accountable, not to their standard, but to His objective standard, His law revealed in His Word. We defend freedom of religion because we know only God's Spirit can change people's hearts, can change them to believe and change them to obey the truth. There's no human government, there's no religious authority that can impose those ideas on the heart of individuals. But we insist on the basis of Scripture that God is the one who determines truth. And the one who will hold all people eternally accountable to believe and to obey that truth is the one righteous and eternal judge, our Lord. In light of these realities then, putting it together, it is very clear, it should be very evident to each one of us that one of our mortal enemies is deception. The first form of deception, as we would think of it today, in light of Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 7, is false doctrine that is taught by teachers who steer people away from God's truth. Amazing passage, wasn't it today, of reading in Ezekiel 13. Concocting ideas in their own mind. Believing their own ideas and then demanding that God fulfill them. False doctrine taught by people who want to steer God's people away from truth. The second form of deception that is so concerning to Christ as He teaches us is false profession made by religious people who have no actual relationship to God's truth. So followers of Jesus Christ, as we gather today, we must know that our eternal standing with God depends upon our knowledge of the truth and our joyful obedience to that truth. This means that we must learn to discern deceptive religious teaching. And we must learn to discern deceptive religious practice. Learning to discern the authentic from the inauthentic is a necessary skill for everyday living, isn't it? It is true for us in this way, in a most intense way. It's really true for all people everywhere. A young man purchases a diamond ring for his fiancée, but he is deceived by the salesperson, and they come to find out that the diamond is really just glass. Well, if the couple never actually does figure that out, all may go well. It's a deception that doesn't hurt them at all. They're ignorant of it, or maybe they do find out they can't live in blissful ignorance any longer, they might be able to do something about it. Or they might even just maybe wisely choose, we're just going to live with it. No one else knew it was glass until now, let's just keep it secret between us, and they go on. It's a deception, it's wrong, it's not a good thing, but it's not the end of the world. But imagine that this couple, instead of buying a ring, gives all of their money to an investor... This man is running a scam and he steals all of their resources. Now it gets a little more serious, doesn't it? But imagine further that this couple decides to purchase a honeymoon package. 
they don't do a very good job of working through the situation and they arrive at their destination and they find that it's very different than they thought. Their suspicions begin to rise, but before they know it, they become victims in a crime ring. They are kidnapped. They are held for ransom. And without an appropriate response from those that might pay the money to ransom them, they are murdered. Now the deception is, of course, deadly. The deception against which Jesus warns us here in Matthew chapter 7 is greater yet. It is a deadly deception that he speaks of, these two forms of deception that have eternal consequences. Not only life and death, but eternal consequences. Here we encounter the most dangerous and consequential of all deceptions. Here we face these twin mortal enemies of the soul, namely false doctrine and false profession. Let's consider Jesus' words as we find them here in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. These first verses in this, as we come to the second half of this chapter, Jesus teaches us to beware of the deception of false prophets. It's fairly straightforward here in verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets. Guard against the attack of false teachers. False prophets, who are they? They are people who claim to speak for God. They claim to speak for the true God. But they actually misrepresent, they twist, and they ultimately deny God's Word. Uh, if you've read the New Testament at all, you know that it is replete with warnings such as this. And if we are going to take those warnings seriously, we must learn to guard ourselves against false teachers. You're going to have to respond. I'm going to have to respond to say this is a way of life. To discern the deception of false teachers. In His sovereign wisdom, God did not choose to put doctrinal orthodoxy in a glass case with guards around it. He permitted His truth to be compromised, to be twisted, to be misused and denied. And so He teaches us as His followers, know this about the plan and know that you must learn to discern those who are mishandling the truth. Now, they're false prophets. They say they speak for the true God. We must be wary and watchful. Now, we're going to get no help from the false prophets themselves. They tell you what you want to believe. They weave together teaching that seems plausible and interesting. But in the end, they peddle a poisonous product that is deadly. Jesus does not specify the content of the false teaching He has in mind here, but in context, it is teaching that points away from His Lordship and teaching that points away from, the, from what His Word says. What Jesus does do is call us, secondly, to understand that false teachers are deceptive. Guard against them. Notice verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Understand that false teachers are deceptive. We're wary of their attacks, but then secondly, we are to know that they pose as curators of genuine Christian teaching. They are believable souls. They seem to honor God, but while they look good outwardly, their hearts are evil. They pose as people dedicated to encouraging and properly instructing God's flock. But like wolves, they are angling to eat that flock for dinner. And we ask, do they intend to deceive? We hear some of these false teachers. We read about a cult now and then, and we wonder, do they intend to deceive? Sometimes. Sometimes they do. Victor Barnard led the River Road Fellowship near Hinckley, Minnesota from 2000 to 2009. 
He used his power, his capacities to lead people, to convince several families in the church through the years to turn over some of their young daughters into his care to live with him on a compound and to become part of his harem. It's happened recently right by us. Recently, thankfully, he was imprisoned and charged with 59 counts of criminal sexual assault. Now, I assume that such a man knows what he's doing. He is out there to purposely deceive people, coming across as a teacher of righteousness, as a representative of God who has an ulterior motive and doesn't care how he destroys anybody's life if he can just get what he wants. It might be a long time till he gets what he deserves. But such a man is deceptive intentionally. But there seem to be false prophets who do not set out to deceive as such. And I know we can't psychoanalyze them and understand every nuance of what they're thinking along the way. But it seems to be fairly consistent that what they do is they come up with a novel teaching to gain attention. And what they then do is they crush their conscience, they suffocate it in some way, as they begin to teach these ideas, there's a thought in the mind, the conscience speaks and says, is this really true? But because there is attention, there's popularity, and then very often there's money. They don't listen to conscience. Then so often the lust for money or prestige kicks in. If they'd stop long enough to listen to their conscience, they might admit that they are intent on actually deceiving people, but they are intoxicated by their way of life. We'll meet some of them later in this passage. But we ask now, how do we determine who they are? They're deceptive. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They look from a distance to be genuine teachers of truth. How do we detect who they are? We guard against this attack. We understand that they are deceptive, so we're operating with that light to begin with. But thirdly then, Jesus says, identify these false teachers by their behavior. He instructs us here and says, this is how you can go forward with it. Look at their behavior. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. We'll get back to that in a moment. But you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I mean, answer, obviously not. It's impossible. Thorn bushes and thistles could never produce delectable fruit. It's, in, it's not going to happen. So, or likewise, verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Fairly straightforward. He illustrates in a different way. Not fruit from thorn bushes and thistles, but also not good fruit from a bad tree or vice versa. The tree determines the nature of the fruit, and the health of the tree determines the quality of the fruit. No arborist on earth sincerely has ever said, wow, this fruit tree is really unhealthy, but it really produces great fruit. That's just never been said. It's impossible. What is more, warns Jesus, it doesn't end well for the bad tree. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is not merely extending the illustration here. He is warning us what happens with false teachers. In the end, the tree is cut down. In the end, they will be judged by God. Oh, how vital is this consideration in our world and in this week. There is a God in heaven. There is a judgment to come. 
bad trees will be cut down, he assures us. Just that knowledge changes everything. When you think you're the God of the universe, when you think there is no God in the universe, when you think there is no final accountability, you live differently than someone who disagrees with you. Jesus would disagree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Connecting that phrase with much of what Jesus teaches is clear that he speaks here of judgment to come. And that will be made clear as we continue on. But here's the summation of it, verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus speaks figuratively here, of course. People aren't growing pears out of their ears. He's talking figuratively. You'll know them by their fruits. So what does he mean by fruit? Contextually, he refers to what people teach, but especially to how they live in light of their teaching. Hendrickson says, nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. It's a great line. Nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. And I'd add to that, in due time. False teachers can look good for a while, but watch their lives and they will eventually demonstrate moral corruption. This is what Jesus is saying. If it's a bad tree, it's going to produce bad fruit. It may take time to discern that, but it'll happen. The moral corruption will come to the surface and you will see them for who they truly are. Their lives will not match up to God's truth or His call to holiness. As, as we consider this, in light of the entire New Testament, we can boil this down into three major categories that we continue to see arising when it comes to false teaching and false teachers. First of all, they destructively disrupt the unity and the peace of God's people. There's times when the unity of God's people must be disrupted but they do so in harmful ways. They divide God's people. Thinking on the three categories of John of what is genuine belief, this is one of the areas where they attack, is how to divide and disrupt and cause trouble in Christ's church. Secondly, they demonstrate fleshly behavior. That is, their fruits demonstrates usually somewhere along the line moral corruption. This can be very diversified in its expressions, but what we see very often is the corruption of greed. The false teacher will eventually, many of them, cave into greed. They will find that people that are listening to them, that are following their teaching, that like what they're hearing, they're not judging according to what God says and what God's standard has been revealed to be. That's not what they're doing. They are just like this teacher. And that teacher very often comes to realize that that attention can leverage dollars out of people's pockets. Here's how you see them. Does this false teacher live extravagantly? This teacher has come now to the place where it seems that he is saying with his lifestyle, I am a little bit better than everybody else. I should have privileges that are very unique. And I have come now to a place where I can gain the fruits of my labors and live in extravagant ways. This is so consistent. And that goes along with a manipulation of money out of people. Sometimes it becomes laughable, the things that are devised to say, do this and this will happen for you. Give me money and this result will take place in your life. Very consistent. And then along the way, unethical business practices. Greed. It's one of the moral failures that is so common with false teachers. One false teacher in our nation said this. These are his words. Poverty is a curse that comes upon those who either have not served God properly or who are not following certain laws of God. 
As followers of Jesus, God has given us authority over finances. We are to command the money to come to us. That is false doctrine. It's a false prophet. It is not the teaching of Jesus. It's amazing, as you read, I've done a little reading in this area this week, it's amazing as they look at Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head, amazing how they twist the scriptures to say, yes, but he had an accountant. And begin to twist the text to say he was really a wealthy man. It's greed that's driving it. And then, of course, so often it falls into sexual immorality. There is a temptation for all people, all face in this area, all things being equal. But so often this is the sordid record of false teachers. And we get below the surface and we find out what's going on behind closed doors with this extravagance and this manipulation of people comes a manipulation with other people for other means. And the third area, so there's the disunity of the church, there's the moral corruption secondly and perhaps predominantly, but then there is, of course, thirdly, false teaching, false doctrine. They twist the Bible's meaning. They take the text of Scripture, they're very interesting to hear, They're good communicators, but they're taking the text of Scripture and they're twisting it. They're twisting its meaning. Almost universally, somewhere, they begin to deny the nature of God. Often seen in the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. They will reject on some level the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that is Jesus dying in the place of sinners as a necessary means of their salvation. Watch the doctrine. It's going to go light there if it doesn't begin to twist that idea and deny it outright. They're in the hand of Satan as his tool, and what you can guarantee is that their doctrine is going to continue to oppose the fundamental truths that God has revealed in His Word. It may be subtle, You may not sense it at first, but watch it. The doctrines corrupt. Beware the deception of false prophets. We've heard it from Jesus. He's warned us. Be awake. Be alert. Don't follow an individual and put a period there. It's not inappropriate to follow the teaching of individuals, but follow first the teaching of Christ and discern, is that individual delivering to us what God has revealed in His Word? Test everything you hear taught. Now, don't be one of those people who's out on a hunt for every possible heretic that they can find under every rock. You don't have to go looking for them. What does Jesus say? Look at the fruit of their life. It's not that we're hunting down, looking for some little line that was off track. Every preacher will make a mistake. Everything, every one of us has some corruption in our doctrine. But we work together as the people of God to filter it, to discern it, to hold one another accountable, to test everything that is said against the external standard of God's revealed Word. So we don't want to be doubting people on a witch hunt, but we don't want to be naive. That's what Jesus says. Don't be naive. Beware. So beware the deception of false prophets. But secondly, beware the deception of false profession. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord. Like Jesus' reference to Himself as the Son of Man, I think the title Lord took on fuller meaning after the resurrection. But I think He knew exactly what He was saying. His hearers on the mount did not perceive the full significance of the term, but Jesus did. Indeed, He reveals here that on the last and great judgment day, He will preside as Lord over all people. So just looking at what he's saying here, you realize that by Lord it's not just, and it can be used that way, just as a a polite uh, reference. 
He's saying something more. There will be people who stand before Him in eternity and acknowledge that He is Lord. But on that day, it will not suffice to merely acknowledge Christ's Lordship. It will not be enough to know that He is Lord of Lords, that He is the sovereign power of the universe. It will not suffice on that day to merely claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. To confess Jesus as Lord, let's make it clear, that is utterly crucial. We are saved as we come to recognize who Christ is, that He is Lord. We confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. As 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 puts it, there's a time when the God that we cursed, we now bless, saying He is Lord. So this is crucial. We don't want to dismiss that idea. But if He is Lord of your confession, He will be Lord of your actions. That's the point. Your life will bear witness that He is your Master. The way that you live everyday life, the way you look at other people, the way that you handle your free time, the way that you work, the way that you rest, the way that you use your money, in everything that you do, it will be increasingly clear Jesus is the Master. What He has said is what matters. It's not just the confession that He's Master, but it's the evidence of life, the fruits of life, that demonstrate that He is indeed the Lord of my life. If He is Lord of your confession, He will be Lord of your actions. Your life will bear witness that He is the Master. Now notice at verse 21, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? We have a contrast here. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, Lord, Lord is not a small thing. But everyone will confess and kneel before Christ, Philippians 2, and confess Him as Lord. Everyone will. But those who do so, claiming to know Him because of that confession, but have no actions to back that up, will be lost. But notice the middle verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That one will enter the kingdom of heaven. This speaks of God's consummated kingdom. Who will enter that kingdom are those who do His will. So we have a second type of profession. A profession that says, I know the right Christ. And since I know Him, I should be included in His kingdom. There's the second profession that says, I know the true Christ, He is Lord, and here is the evidence of my life, the fruit of my life that shows that I've understood Him to be the Lord. It's this one who will enter the kingdom of God. One merely talks, the other acts. The profession is matched by the obedience. There's a fascinating section in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress which a man named Faithful meets a man named Talkative. I don't know if Bunyan's channeling this passage, but he's right on top of it. Faithful is impressed by the godliness of Talkative. He's a good friend. He's going to point me to Christ. He's a great guy, but under the counsel of the main character Christian, who by this point in in the journey has developed some maturity and some insight, Christian gets faithful aside and he says, listen, I want you to talk to him like this. Ask him these questions. See what he does with it. So faithful takes these questions questions, this sort of way of getting through to talkative, and he keeps asking pointed questions of evidence of the Spirit's presence in talkative's life. And talkative gets more and more uncomfortable. And pretty soon there's a rift between the two, because everything's about talk. It's not about how he lives. He doesn't back it up. Christian counsels faithful with this memorable critique of talkative in Bunyan's words. He says this, All he hath lieth in the tongue, and his religion is to make a noise therewith. Old English, for all he does is talk. 
He doesn't live. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be talkative. Capital T. It's all right if it's small t. (laughs) Don't be that guy. More on this later. But let's say this at this point. Our final judgment before God will be based upon our obedience to His Word. Our final judgment before God will be based on obedience to His Word. That's what verse 21 is saying. The one who does the will of the Father, this one will enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll come back to that. Let that settle and percolate down into your mind. This is the consistent teaching of judgment passages in the New Testament. God the judge will look for fruit. He will look for obedience. We will not be saved in the end only by a mere confession of Christ as Lord. We will be saved from judgment by the evidence of a godly life. Now back to the false professors. Well, we'll come back to this theme later. But there's those who say, Lord, Lord, they won't enter the kingdom. There's those who do the will of God, they will enter the kingdom. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, he's filling out here now a a fuller evidence of what will take place with these false professors. They will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Who's on trial here? God is. God's on trial. Did we not? What does that phrase mean? Did we not? On that day, on the final day of judgment, the point is that they consciously acted in Jesus' name. That is, they perceive themselves to be operating with Jesus' authority, but something's gone wrong. Did we not, God? They're arguing with Him. They're in desperation here. Wait a minute. We cast out demons in Your name. They had the results to back up their claim, it seemed. And now here they are, standing before Jesus in eternity, desperate. Why? Did we not? I think as we put it together with our understanding of the last days, they have died. They have gone into eternity and they have suffered in hell. Now their bodies resurrected have been restored to their spirits. They are separated from God's people. Matthew chapter 25, it's all laid out there. They're separated from God's people, and so they desperately appeal to the works that they have done. God, you made a mistake. Have we not done this and this and this? So notice that they rightly realize their final judgment before God is based on their works. And that's what they're pointing to, is their works. Have we not done this in your name accordingly they remind jesus what they've done we preached your word we cast out demons and apparently they did whether deceptively or genuinely whether with the power of satan or the power of god it's not laid out here for us it doesn't matter all we know is how jesus responds and it's horrifying this is that jesus churches don't want to talk about but here he is We take him at his word. He says this, verse 23, Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We knew you, Jesus. We acted in your name. We stood for you. They announce this to him. They speak this to him but he declares authoritatively to them, I never knew you. I think it is a reference to his electing love. They are not his people. They might think they were, but they're not. You are not my people. What is the basis of Christ's judgment? It's not phenomenal religious experiences. We have to get this in view. It is not even words of confession only, but you workers of lawlessness, He says, they were disobedient to the will of God. 
They had a long sheet of religious activities on their resume, but they were lacking in what? They were lacking in holiness. The distinctive character of those who consistently and persistently over time seek to align their lives with Christ's will. I don't know you. This is serious warning. We must beware then the mesmerizing appeal of religious experiences. There are many professing Christians in this world who are obsessed with healings. They are obsessed with tongue speaking. They are obsessed with prophecies that come true. They are obsessed with exorcism of demons. And their whole Christian world is taken up with these phenomenal events. Evidences of the divine realm touching the natural realm. And they relish them and talk about them and seek them. And it's all about these experiences. The supernatural realm does touch the natural realm. Jesus was a worker of miracles. There's no question. But Jesus was not impressed with what so easily impresses us. Do you remember that account from the disciples' life? He sent them out to minister to people, and they went out and the demons were subject to them. Going from place to place, we don't know what that looked like exactly, but they were casting out demons in one place after another, and the realm of Satan was on its knees. Remember what they did when they came back? What would you do? Jesus, we, look, this is what we just experienced. The demons were submitted to us. It was so powerful. Do you remember what the Master said to them? He said in Luke 10, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. They are. It's great. It's my power. But he says, don't rejoice in this. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We must be cautious to look at the phenomenal religious experience as all that matters when Jesus teaches us that it's really largely irrelevant. What matters to our eternal salvation is that we heed the Master's words. That we walk in light of His commands, little by little, day by day, persevering in faithfulness before Him. Maybe closer to home. Some seem to tap into this very way of thinking when they constantly refer back to some religious experience, a response to an invitation at an evangelistic event, getting all tingly about reading a verse of Scripture or hearing a sermon that impressed them, doing good deeds and the good feeling that comes from that. And this is what they're pointing to, but they're not living out what Christ teaches. Be careful not to permit our experiences to become a false hope. Put your hope in Christ and live for His glory. Key is not a religious experience as well as that might be. The key is to do the will of God. So it is less who we say Jesus is, an absolutely vital confession. It is more how we live in response to who Jesus is that determines our destiny. So consider your life. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. Is there evidence of faithfulness to God's will in your daily walk? Are you actively submitting to His Lordship and His revealed truth? You will sin. Yes. You will not find His call on your life always comfortable or inviting. But you know the path of repentance. You see His Word. You know your sin. You ask His forgiveness. And you're seeking to live according to Christ's direction. And your repentance leads little by little over the years to growing change and holiness. Now that leads back 
to a point raised earlier. And perhaps to a question that's troubling you, and maybe it should. But our final judgment is based on our good deeds in life. Isn't our final judgment based on Jesus paying for our sins? Taking the judgment for us? Indeed it is. And how vital and fundamental is that truth. But as we take a whole Bible view, we must come to that position. It's Christ crucified and risen that is my hope and is my confidence. D.A. Carson says this so well. He says, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. Hear this. With all that I've said about judgment, hear that. No one enters the kingdom because of obedience. But it is equally true that no one enters the kingdom who is not obedient. You see what he's saying? It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in one's life inevitably results in obedience. So we can look at what Jesus says and draw one of two conclusions. And the normal thing is to draw the wrong conclusion. He says, only those who do the will of God enter the kingdom of heaven. Conclusion, I've got to obey God so He lets me into heaven. Wrong answer. Jesus instructs us to think differently about that statement. It teaches us to know that only on the merits of Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. You remember His parable of the one who got thrown out of the wedding because he didn't have a garment? The garment of righteousness to the sinner is provided by Jesus. You aren't going to sew a garment of righteous works and impress Him with it. It's going to be His righteousness given to you, but you've got to wear the robe. You've got to put His righteousness on. What do we mean by that? We mean that Jesus came to earth on this very mission to rescue sinners. In fulfillment of prophecy, He was identified by God's revealed Word as the One who would come to liberate His people from their sin. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the law of God which we cannot obey. He did. We, breaking that law, then come to the place where we turn to Him in dependent confidence and say, He, Christ, was the Lamb of God. He came to die in my place to pay the penalty of my sin so that my sin is put on Him and His righteousness is given to me. He pays the penalty of sin as my substitute, justifying me and satisfying the Father's righteous anger against sin. And of course, all of this hinging on the fact that He rises from the dead in victory over death and judgment. We are saved by faith in the work of Christ. We are not saved by faith in our own works. But our works demonstrate that we indeed have been born again, indwelt by the Spirit of God and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If we're clothed with the righteous standing of Christ, then that standing will be ever more evident in the way that we live. And this is what the false teachers want to destroy, whether they know it or not. They don't want you to be like Jesus. They want you to make them wealthy. They don't want you to be like Jesus. They want you to fawn over them and to elevate them and to celebrate them. They do not want you to celebrate Christ. The true teacher comes and says, here we are. In poverty of spirit as utter sinners, we come before God's grace. I don't remember who said it. It just comes to mind. But some... Christian said, when I get to heaven, I expect to not see people I thought would be there. To see some people I didn't think would be there. And then to ask, why on earth am I here? There's only one answer to that, and that's Christ. It isn't our goodness. 
But if Christ is the answer, if, if it's through trust in what He has done and His righteousness that fits us to come into His presence, the evidence that we're ready to stand there is that His saving grace has been working in our life to change us and to conform us into His likeness. Little by little, slowly but surely, with all of our sin, a life of repentance and continual trust in what Christ has done. So with this, then, we take on teeth and a sword. And we say we must resist false doctrine. We must resist false profession. We cannot simply heed what we think, but to know what is really true about us and what God has truly revealed. And this is where a local church comes in so significantly into this process a spiritual cooperative designed to help us fight these sources of deception. This is where we learn what true doctrine is. What audacity does that guy have to say that he stands here and teaches the church true doctrine? It's no audacity at all. It's what God has revealed. And I plead with you, test everything I say by what is revealed in this Word and test everything that every teacher in this church teaches according to God's standard of His revealed Word. We'll be pushing each other and disagreeing with each other on things. We can work through that. We'll never have the mind of God with perfection in this life. But a church exists to say, here is the Word of the Lord. And feeding on that Word, week in and week out, we come to discern false doctrine and resist false teachers, to see them for who they are, and to say, no, we want the purity and the truth of God's revealed Word. And a church then, on that second point, helps us fight false profession. It provides accountability and mutual edification to help us persevere in the faith. The local church is a test of the genuineness of our profession. Where we are tracking away from the Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ come along to exhort and to encourage us. As I said to our membership seminar on Wednesday night. I'm in this church because one reason, among others, one is that I know that if my life gets off track morally, I know there are people here in this church who would stop me. I know they would. They love me enough that they would call me to account and say, Dan, we got to talk. I need a church like that. And so do you. One that is willing to lovingly and graciously understand sin and repentance, but one that is able to say, you can't go there. That's not what a true professor of salvation does and believes. Come back to the track, to the path, the narrow way, and follow Christ. We need each other to that end. If we do our job as a church, if we all do that job, One of the glorious joys that awaits us is to enter into God's presence and to know that we will not hear these horrible words. Depart from me. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. But as we do that work together as a church and seek to grow in Christ in moral purity and holiness and faithfulness to His Word, by His grace we will hear through our efforts together as an assembly, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And what joy that is. It's joy now. It's joy now to know Christ, to walk with Him now. What will it be in eternity to come into His presence and to know the false teachers are gone. The false professors are gone. There's people here we didn't expect to see. There's people not here we thought would be here. But we always come back and ask, why me? It's just pure, unadulterated grace. Our hope is in Christ. But the evidence that He has saved us will be a transformed life of holiness that His grace produces. And we together as a church, binding together in covenant to help one another so persevere in the faith, day by day, for the glory of Christ. Let's bow for prayer.
Lord, we need you. We're not sufficient in ourselves. We can't get to first base by ourselves. We'll never enter the kingdom of heaven by ourselves. But with Christ, we may. And there may be those here today that are not leaning in dependence upon Jesus Christ as Savior, and we pray that they would be willing to talk to someone as we leave today. I know there are all kinds of people willing to talk to them. Please help them to seek out a friend, someone sitting by them, a pastor stationed at one of the exit doors. May they seek someone today and say, I'd like to talk more about Christ's work to save sinners. However they word it, however they put it, draw them to that today. For today is the day of salvation. We pray, Lord, for those who know Christ as Savior and pray that we would be motivated and encouraged to press forward day by day in faithfulness to you. There might be some here who are discouraged. They're saying, I wonder if I'm a false professor. I wonder if I'm one of those people that can say, Lord, Lord, but I don't live the way He wants me to live. I pray that You'd take that conviction of spirit and not let it just dissipate as we leave here today, but allow it to settle down and may they come running to You. Not with a spotlight over their head wondering if they measure up, but may they come running into Your welcoming arms and find hope and forgiveness there. I pray for each one of us that we will grow to set sin aside, to root it out, and to be faithful to our calling as Christ's followers. Help us to this end, we pray. We lay these requests at your feet, asking that you will do a work through your Spirit in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray.